Hello and welcome to the summer 2012 edition of the Lesbian and Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, yet again, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. So um, thanks for wishing me a happy birthday, Art. I wanted happy to say birthday, thank you. Brad. Thank you. It was very thoughtful of you. Is that all? That's it. <laughs> you do not get no presents. Gift? You don't have a gift under the table. I don't don't have a gift under the okay, table. Okay, but I'm spending my birthday with you and thousands of listeners <laughs> okay. worldwide. Okay, here we go. So the uh, lead story of uh, the June issue, excuse me, the summer issue, concerns a host of developments relating to petitions for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court in connection with lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of Section Three of the dreaded Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, as most of our listeners probably already know, cert petitions are essentially requests accompanied by briefs to the court, arguing the reasons why the Supreme Court should hear a case. Art, there's, um, there's a lot going on here. Some of it seems procedural in nature, but as you sum up in law notes, the point is, is that all the cases we're about to discuss are seeking to have the, the Supreme Court opine on the ultimate question of whether Section 3 of DOMA violates the Equal Protection Clause. Um, while reminding our listeners of what Section 3 entails in all its nastiness, give us a, a recap of the flurry of developments that may land a case before the U.S. Supreme Court sooner than perhaps expected. Uh, well, perhaps three cases. And, right, right. And as I'll mention, That's why I said cases. I'll mention later when we do of note even a fourth case that doesn't have anything to do with DOMA. Perfect. But uh, as, as our listeners are undoubtedly aware, the Defense of Marriage Act was adopted by Congress in 1996 – in order to address a non-existent problem, uh, <laughs> since nowhere in the civilized world could same-sex couples marry in 1996, the question whether the federal government should recognize same-sex marriages was intensely hypothetical at the time. But the Hawaii Supreme Court had ruled that same-sex couples might have a right to marry under the Hawaii Constitution. And this uh, came up uh, with a trial scheduled to take place during the national elections in October of 96, and anticipating that, it became a political issue in the national elections. And the Senate Republicans and, Sen and uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives introduced this bill. And the idea behind the Defense of Marriage Act was to provide that no state would be obligated to recognize marriages performed in other states between same-sex couples if they didn't want to. Uh, so Section 2 of the Defense of Marriage Act says that no state is required to give full faith and credit to same-sex marriages. Which is a bit of a departure state. from what normally – how we normally treat marriage as valid right. before Norm one jurisdiction. Normally uh, the rules of comedy apply and marriages performed uh, – legally performed in one jurisdiction are recognized in another unless they violate an important public policy of the state that's being asked to recognize them. So that was section two. Section three uh, provides that for all purposes of federal law, only the legal union of one man and one woman will be recognized as a marriage, and a spouse has to be a marital partner of the opposite sex. Uh, and this is for all purposes of federal law. Interestingly, uh, when the bill was pending in Congress, nobody thought to ask anyone to do some research to figure out what will be involved in this. That is, how many rights and benefits and privileges and obligations in federal law would be withheld from same-sex couples. Would, would the marriage. drafters of this measure have cared, though? I mean, well, it would have perhaps added some credibility to uh, their statute if they were able to articulate why, for example, same-sex couples shouldn't be recognized for this purpose or that purpose or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's none of that. There's just a broadside disqualification of same-sex couples 
for any recognition under federal law. That's Section 3. Uh, people have sometimes asked me, what about Section 1? Well, yeah, Section I, 1 I says – What is Section 1? Section 1 says this, this statute shall be called the Defense of Marriage Act. Oh, well, the, Section 1 is usually a throwaway, but that's, yeah. a, that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a doozy of a throwaway. Right. They yeah. gave it a name, yeah. and it's <clears throat> a, a totally implausible name because, of course, the statute doesn't defend marriage. What it do, does is it diminishes marriage by denying it and denying recognition of it to large numbers of people. So at any rate, at the time the Defense of Marriage Act was passed, it had absolutely uh, no application to anybody because no same-sex couples could get married. Uh, but starting in 2003, when the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage, implemented in May 2004, and then we have same-sex marriage now in six states, and the District of Columbia has been legislated in some more states this year, and depending on how referenda turn out in the fall, it might go into effect in Washington and Maryland. So we now have an estimated 100,000 same-sex married couples in the United States. The number is swollen a bit by the fact that Canada has provided same-sex marriage since uh, the summer of 2003 in some areas of Canada. And so thousands of same-sex couples from the United States went to Canada to get married when it was only available there. Uh, so the estimate that I've seen most recently in the press is as many as 100,000 married same-sex couples now living in the United States whose marriages are not recognized by our federal government. And once we started having same-sex couples who were married and being denied federal benefits, we got lawsuits. And lawsuits have been filed all around the country. There are more than a dozen already. Uh, in fact, there are more than a dozen that the bipartisan legal advisory group of the House of Representatives called BLAG <laughs> has intervened in on behalf can of the House of Representatives. Okay. We, we're going to talk we, a lot about we, BLAG. We've got to explain I, all this. I, but but I, the, the, the cert petition on the bipartisan yeah. part? I don't get it. Bipartisan, that means there are both Democrats and yeah, Republicans. Yeah, no, no, I know what the, <laughs> I know what the word see, here's, bipartisan Here's means. the story. But yeah, I mean, Pelosi and, 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 uh, and Hoyer yeah. are not in yeah, favor they, of this. Yeah, they're getting so, outvoted. Right, so right. It's, it's bipartisan in well, name only, right? Here, here, here's the story. There is a federal statute that provides if the Justice Department is not going to defend a federal statute that's under attack in the courts, it must notify Congress mm -hmm. so that Congress can, if it wants to, hire its own lawyers to defend. They can, they can require the counsel to the House or the counsel to the Senate or they can hire an outside lawyer. And the Senate, the Democrats control the Senate. They weren't interested in hiring anyone to defend DOMA, but the Republicans control the House. So in February 2011, Attorney General Holder and President Obama announced that the Justice Department would no longer defend Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act in these pending lawsuits, which they had figured out were losers. <laughs> so they weren't going to waste any more time defending it. Uh, so they notified Speaker John Boehner of the House. They said, the ball's in your court, John. You want to defend it? Go ahead, defend it. And so he summoned into existence, uh, and it has been summoned into existence in the past, a uh, group called the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group, which consists of the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader, the Minority Leader, the Majority Whip, and the minority right, right, right. There's just a bit of a misnomer so, because among that group of five, um, there's well, often the party, going to be disagreement among them. So. Well, the party that controls the House has three votes and right. the party that's in the minority has two votes. Uh, so every vote that Blag has taken in this process has been three to two. That's great. Along party lines. <laughs> uh, so they voted to intervene selectively uh, in cases in which uh, the constitutionality of Section 3 is an issue.
And the Justice Department, of course, is the defendant or is officially the defending counsel in these cases. But uh, ever since February of uh, 2011, the Justice Department has been notifying the court, we're only here in name to represent the United States, but we really represent the executive branch, which believes that Section 3 is unconstitutional. And Mr. Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General of the United States during the second term of George W. Bush, has been hired by Blagg to defend Section 3. And so he has intervened on behalf of the House of Representatives in lots of cases, including the three cases now that might be going to the Supreme Court in its term that begins in October 2012. So the three cases are the case from the First Circuit, which is called Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, even though what's really at issue here is not the case that was brought by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but actually the case that was filed by gay and lesbian advocates and defenders uh, on behalf of a group of married same-sex couples, uh, the lead plaintiff is Gill. So uh, when we refer to it, GLAD refers to it as Gill versus Department of Health and Human Services. But uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts filed their own case claiming that the constitutional rights of the state of Massachusetts were being violated because uh, there were various programs that they administer that are partially funded by the federal government or that involve federal guidelines and rules. They're being forced to discriminate. Right. Uh, they, it's they're an interesting twist, by the way, on the sort of states' rights argument yeah. that they're, they're claiming the impingement on their rights right. as a state, given their own marriage equality. Right. And, uh, and because well. uh, because the uh, premise of Section 2 of DOMA is states' rights. That is, no state should be obligated by the federal constitution to recognize same But only when marriage. it goes in one direction. Right. Yeah. Well, no, no, states are allowed to recognize No, no, but I mean, yeah. you know. But at any rate, so we have pro-states rights and anti-states rights <laughs> in the same statute. This is a schizophrenic statute. Uh, so at any rate, uh, this case, which was filed by GLAD in the Federal District Court in Boston, summer of uh, 2010, the district judge ruled that it was unconstitutional. Uh, he said it failed to meet rational basis scrutiny, which is the least demanding level of scrutiny. He said that none of the reasons that were spelled out by Congress in the legislative reports in the debate in 1996 would justify the statute. Uh, the case was appealed by the federal government in 2010. This is before the Justice Department changed its mind about Section 3. Uh, so originally they filed a brief arguing that uh, Section 3 survives rational basis review. But then uh, around that time, Lawsuits were filed by GLAD in Connecticut and by the ACLU in New York, uh, challenging Section 3 in different contexts. And New York and Connecticut are in the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit has never taken a position on the appropriate level of judicial review for federal laws that violate equal protection or alleged to violate equal protection uh, involving sexual orientation. And so it's an open question in the Second Circuit because the U.S. Supreme Court has never decided the issue either. Uh, and the Justice Department had to answer these complaints. And the deadline was looming early in the spring, and they uh, studied the matter and decided that uh, unlike their position in the First Circuit, their position in Second Circuit cases was going to be that sexual orientation discrimination merits heightened scrutiny. Because that argument, as you're pointing out, was not foreclosed in the Second Circuit by right. the absence of a decision on right. point. It was foreclosed in the First Circuit because there is a First Circuit decision uh, using rational basis uh, in a military challenge. 
and uh, so Judge Toro was bound by that. So they changed their position in responding to the complaints in uh, the uh, Peterson case in Connecticut and in the Edith Windsor case in New York, which we'll be talking about a little more. Uh, they took the position that heightened scrutiny applies and that the statute was unconstitutional. Blag intervened in both cases and took the position that it's just rational basis and that it survives rational basis. In fact, as they point out, the Justice Department took the position that it would survive rational basis in the First Circuit case. Uh, so in the meantime, the case in the First Circuit goes up on appeal uh, with the Justice Department arguing on behalf of the plaintiffs as well as the government or the, or the executive branch and Blag arguing on behalf of the House of Representatives. And the First Circuit Court of Appeals issued its decision in May, uh, and we discussed it, I think, in the last uh, podcast. Uh, I think we did, because it was very new at the time <laughs> when we did the podcast, and, and it was one of our major cases. And uh, the First Circuit said, well, it's, it's not quite a traditional rational basis case, they said, because uh, the Supreme Court case law in equal protection cases has tended to distinguish between commercial regulations that are challenged and statutes that disadvantage politically unpopular groups. And they tend to give greater scrutiny to those. This is where our conversation is coming back to me a little bit because I remember being somewhat puzzled for a minute. I, I always try to make sense of what this, I guess, termed rational basis with teeth or yeah. more searching form of rational basis. I mean, at well, a certain point, it sort of becomes a little... Well, here's the thing to understand. So to me as an observer, it seems right. a little sort of... It's concocted bizarre. and bizarre. I yes. mean, we might as well just say that we, we, we don't we recognize this statute for what it is, and well, we're going to strike it down. Well, well, let's let's put it this way: the equal protection clause is a very simple provision in the Constitution. It says in the Fourteenth Amendment that the state shall afford equal protection of the laws to all the people who reside within their jurisdiction, and the Supreme Court has read the same requirement into the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, applying to the federal government. So the Constitution says nothing about rational basis and heightened scrutiny and strict scrutiny and compelling interests and narrowly. These are all phrases that the Supreme Court has used in describing an analytical process because the court is confronted with this problem. Virtually every statute draws lines. Virtually every statute that, that confers benefits has qualifications. In essence, of course, you're going to right. wind up treating right. some people differently than there, others. There are winners and losers right. in the political game. And the court has taken the position that demanding in every instance strict equality regardless of any differences or distinctions between people is absurd. And so they have to come up with a methodological formula for figuring out when a line is crossed too far and equal protection is violated. And so... They make individual decisions based on the cases before them. And then legal scholars, law review note and comment writers, law professors, treatise writers, book writers, they try to come up with a theoretical explanation for what the court is doing that will rationalize the cases and make sense out of them. And what you get is this terminology. You get very confused law students and future lawyers. Well, you do. But you get this You get this. Terminology. I count myself among them. <laughs> you get this terminology. It seems very unprincipled to me. How's that? Well, actually, is it really I think more trying, to any? I think they're trying to be principled, but the problem is each new case that comes up presents a different well, set sure. of facts. Well, sure, right. And, and the result is that you can't really confidently predict the future of new unprecedented questions 
based on how they well, particularly with, you can't you can't predict the uh, can future acts of Congress, how right. off the rails one might go right. with respect to distinctions you can speculate. among people. So, so in this case, uh, the First Circuit panel said, "We are bound by First Circuit precedent not to apply heightened scrutiny. We have to apply the rational basis test." But we look at Supreme Court decisions applying the rational basis test, and we see that they scrutinize with greater care. Uh, that they provide lesser deference to Congress, that they give closer than usual scrutiny. These are all phrases I've harvested out of the First Circuit's opinion. When the statute that's being challenged discriminates against a politically unpopular group. And they said this is especially important in a case where, as the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is arguing, that the federal government is forcing them to discriminate as well. This raises issues of federalism and states' rights. And so they said, we're not going to just lay back in a traditional rational basis style and say that any plausible thing that might come up that might justify the Defense of Marriage Act is okay to satisfy us. We're going to ask whether denying recognition to same-sex marriages accomplishes, actually accomplishes or advances any legitimate purposes. Well, and just just to pause there, I mean, none of this would be absolutely required to even go into if, if there had been a ruling to date from the U.S. Supreme Court that members of the LGBT community formed were members of a suspect class right. in which this classification yeah. would be subject to strict scrutiny. Right. I mean, another, this is all a bunch of gymnastics flowing from that. It's not gymnastics. Well, what do you want it's to a, call it? It's an attempt to <laughs> it's an sorry. attempt to apply an analytical process that okay. makes some kind of sense. So applying this process, being a little less deferential, a little more searching, uh, a little more careful about evaluating the bona fides of the various arguments that are being made, the court finds that it's unconstitutional, which we could have told them from the outset without any of this fuss, right? <laughs> Brad, you and I know. Uh, so, it, so Blag it feel right as why? Well. Yeah. So Blag filed a cert petition, and uh, the cert petition, of course, asked the Supreme Court to review the case, and they present two questions. The first question they present is whether Section Three of the Defense of Marriage Act violates the equal protection component of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Okay. Okay. Fair Second enough. question, whether the court below erred by inventing and applying to Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act a previously unknown standard of equal protection review. I think that's an unnecessary question, but they wanted to get a little dig in there. Now, the Solicitor General just a few days later, filed its cert petition, which sort yeah, of surprised people. And, and I, I know you're going to get to that, but you, you also note that there seemed to be a little bit of a a bigger rush to do this than at least the time horizon would well, I mean, lawyers often days. Yeah. take their time, and you noted that this came rather early. What, what's going on with that? Uh, maybe they wanted it to be an election issue, so they wanted uh, the cert petition to be pending and the Supreme Court's announcement on the cert petition to be right before the election. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Uh, the Solicitor General followed within uh, a few days, filing its own petition, uh, which may have surprised some people, but the Solicitor General has made clear, uh, the Justice Department has made clear, that they're not going to do anything to impede the ability of Blag to bring these issues to the court. And some might question whether Blag had standing to appeal this decision. Uh, by the Solicitor General filing a cert petition, the Supreme Court can grant the SG's petition, and it will be clear that the case is probably there. So you're saying we're rendering moot right. the Blag's effort to get yeah. these questions before and, and technically, the Solicitor General disagrees with the First Circuit's analysis on the standard of review, because the Solicitor General argued it, uh, that it, it uh, 
should be heightened scrutiny. But but you note also some interesting phrasing in the way that right. SG has framed the They question. said it's whether Section 3 of DOMA violates the Fifth Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws as applied to persons of the same sex who are legally married under the laws of their state. And my question is, what do they mean by their state? Do they mean the state where they got married, or do they mean the state where they live? Because people in this country are reasonably mobile, and people cross state lines to get married. People get married and then cross state lines because of a job. And some may live in states that would recognize right. the out-of-state marriage, some but may not. some may not. I mean, yeah. uh, that's why we have all these ridiculous same-sex divorce cases popping out in Texas, <laughs> a state where you can't get married. <laughs> but people can get married elsewhere and can so live in So what Texas. do you think that phrasing is about? Is that I'm, an error or is I'm that sure. a signal uh, of how they're going to argue this? What, what I'm hoping is they're going to say a marriage that was lawful where it was contracted. Uh, there is a, a bill in Congress that proposes to uh, repeal the Defense of Marriage Act and replace it with the Respect for Marriage Act, which would say that the federal government recognizes lawfully contracted same-sex marriages regardless of where the people are living. Uh, and I think the Obama administration has endorsed that bill. So maybe they're, they're phrasing it narrowly because this exactly describes the issue of the plaintiffs in this case. They're all same-sex couples who are married and living in Massachusetts. Uh, at any rate, those petitions are on file. Uh, but then the Justice Department did something that struck some people as a bit strange. That is, there's a case – there are actually two cases pending in California which are on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, one of them, uh, Lambda Legal, is representing Karen Galinsky, a staff attorney for the Ninth Circuit who married her same-sex partner in California in 2008 when same-sex marriage was available then sought to enroll her in her employee benefits plan as a spouse, was turned down by the Federal Office of Personnel Management, which said, we're bound by DOMA. We can't recognize your marriage. Uh, she filed a grievance. She won her grievance on the internal Ninth Circuit grievance procedure, but the Office of Personnel Management refused to comply. They said DOMA overrides the Ninth Circuit grievance procedure. So Lambda filed suit on her behalf in the U.S. District Court and Judge White of the U.S. District Court ruled in favor of Galinsky that Section 3 is unconstitutional. And that case is now on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Blagg defended DOMA in that case. Uh, the Justice Department attacked DOMA in that case. They even participated in oral argument. And so that's pending in the Ninth Circuit. Oral argument has been scheduled for the first week in September. But then, surprise, the Solicitor General filed a cert petition a special kind of a cert petition. It's called the Petition for Writ of Certiorari Before Judgment. So this is to bypass the Ninth to Circuit. To bypass the Ninth Circuit. The Supreme Court's rules allow for this in extraordinary cases. They say if there's a really compelling reason to bypass the circuit court and bring it straight up. And the Justice, Justice Department, the Solicitor General, argues, why spend time arguing this in the Ninth Circuit? It's going to be in the Supreme Court this term. Why not bring up the cases that are pending? Uh, so they filed that cert petition. Now, another development, that's uh, this week uh, on uh, July 16th, the ACLU represents Edith Windsor in her DOMA suit. 
which went to trial and which was decided in June. We're going to be discussing the substance. We, of that we may go shortly. right into it now because it fits yeah, here. Instead of well, taking a break. Yeah, let's not. We don't want to. We don't want to let so our much. listeners go to the bathroom. No. Huh? <laughs> so uh, they can press pause, but it makes yes. sense. So okay. tell us about Windsor. So and then. all right. So so let's talk about the Windsor case because the ACLU surprised everybody by filing a cert petition this week, even though they won. That's very unusual to file a cert petition when you won. So uh, Edie Windsor. And her uh, partner, Thea Spire, who uh, began their relationship way back in the 1960s. They were together for more than 40 years. And within a few years of living together, uh, there was a proposal of marriage, even though they knew it was only hypothetical that you couldn't get married back then. But they considered themselves engaged. And unfortunately, Thea Spire was not healthy. She suffered various illnesses. She became a paraplegic. Uh, Edie Windsor took care of her the way a spouse would take care of uh, a spouse who became paraplegic. And she had various setbacks, and it became clear by 2007, very clear, that she didn't have long to live. Doctors said her prognosis was not good. And by 2007, they were thinking, you know, we could actually get married. While we're still alive, still together, we could get married. In 2007, there were limited options. Uh, they could move to Massachusetts. They lived in New York. They could move to Massachusetts to get married. In, in 2007, you had to be a resident in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Uh, they could go out to Iowa. Same-sex marriage had recently, but that was a bit of a schlep to Iowa. But in Canada, you had to take the train up to Toronto. They got married in Toronto, and they came back. And in 2009, Thea passed away, and Edie was hit with estate taxes like you wouldn't believe. Thea had left her entire estate. And this is to the tune of $363,000 worth the of taxes. Federal. Right, that's, that's the, the federal, federal. In fact, uh, the state taxes, when you add it, it's just extraordinary uh, how much money in taxes. It comes out to $638,581 in estate taxes. None of which would have been owable if they were right. an opposite-sex married couple, correct? Right, both under the federal Internal Revenue Code and under the state tax law in New York, there is an unlimited spousal deduction, which means you deduct from the estate the amount that's left to the surviving spouse, and you only have tax on the rest if it exceeds the cutoff, uh, which is pretty high. So, uh, I mean, when when Thea died, she owned a lot of property, evidently. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York City real estate, you know. So, uh, and the way you do it with taxes, you don't sit there and refuse to pay because they come after you. You pay if you can, and then you sue for a refund. And so uh, Edie Windsor uh, connected up with the ACLU, Lesbian and Gay Rights Project here in New York, and cooperating attorneys from Paul Weiss. Roberta Kaplan is the lead uh, counsel from Paul Weiss, who argued the New York same-sex marriage case in the Court of Appeals several years back. And they brought suit claiming that uh, Edie Windsor, as a surviving spouse, should be entitled to the full marital deduction and should be entitled to a complete refund of the three hundred sixty, actually $363,053 that she had paid in estate taxes. And they argued that because Section 3 of DOMA discriminates based on sexual orientation, uh, it involves a suspect classification. It should have strict scrutiny. And again, this is in the Second Circuit. So, I mean, yeah, start, starting in the Southern District of the Southern Second District, Circuit, right. they can make this argument. They can make this that. argument. It wasn't foreclosed uh, to them. Uh, the uh, Justice Department, defending the IRS, uh, took the position 
that uh, this is at best a heightened scrutiny case, but they agree Section 3 is unconstitutional. Blagg takes the position it's a rational basis case and Section 3 survives rational basis. In fact, they pointed out the Justice Department said as much in its original brief in the First Circuit case. And so this uh, should be an easy case for the court to dismiss. So Blagg filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, the ACLU filed a motion for summary judgment. And on June 6th, Judge Barbara Jones of the Southern District of New York ruled in favor of plaintiff. Sort of discounting uh, one by one all right. of the reasons offered as a right. rational. Well, the interesting in thing is, she said, "Look, the Second Circuit hasn't decided the level of review. They're asking me, you know, puny little federal district judge, to make new law in the Second Circuit and to find a suspect classification." She said, "I'm, you know, the Supreme Court is warned to be very cautious about finding new suspect classifications, and in fact, it could have done so in Romer versus Evans back in '96." It could have decided that sexual orientation was a suspect classification, and it didn't. Uh, now, she doesn't make the error that I think many federal courts do of saying that Romer decided that sexual orientation is not a suspect classification. It just didn't decide the issue. It decided that Colorado Amendment 2, which was challenged in that case, didn't have a rational you, basis. You, you make the point that they decided that statute they were so beyond right. the pale that almost right. the normal rules of, of, of scrutiny, you know, the didn't normal apply. categories don't apply. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, uh, Judge Jones said, look, I don't have to decide whether we have heightened scrutiny here. I don't have to decide any of that because I do my analysis under rational basis and I come out to the conclusion I agree with Judge Toro in Boston. I agree with everyone who said that it's unconstitutional. Look, the First Circuit just said it a few weeks ago. It's unconstitutional. Well, is this rational basis with a little more teeth or is well, this traditional rational what basis? What she does is she says the Supreme Court has, you know, as, as the First Circuit said, the Supreme Court has used a different sort of rational basis test in different kinds of cases. And where we're talking about uh, a federal statute that discriminates against a politically unpopular group, they've given a little bit of a, uh, of a closer look. And she also cited Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion in Lawrence versus Texas where she made the same point, that uh, the court has been a little more demanding in its rational basis review when we're talking about a situation where we have reason to suspect that there may have been bias or prejudice at work. Uh, and so Based on rational basis, she finds it unconstitutional. And then uh, – and that was on June 6th. And just a month later, a little more than a month later, the ACLU files its petition. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking they just want to get into the game here, right? <laughs> no, but, but really they make a very good point. Edie Windsor just turned 83. Shortly after her wife died, she suffered a heart attack. Mm-hmm. She sustained permanent heart damage. She's frail. She's 83. If this case goes to the Second Circuit and then maybe an on bank, and then, you know, this could take forever. And, and they make the point in their cert petition. They say uh, Edie Windsor should get the remedy in this case, not her estate. <laughs> That's well said. I want to I wanna close then in this discussion. Yeah. There's a lot there. But you – you talk about a fascinating possibility uh, in your coverage of this. Yeah, this, this uh, is that I want to use your own words that there could be the situation in the Supreme Court potentially of three different LGBT public interest advocacy groups, which we've spoken about: Glad, Lambda Legal, and the ACLU LGBT Rights Project, simultaneously appearing before the Supreme Court to defend lower gay 
rights victories, lower court gay rights victories, allied with the petitioner, the solicitor general, <laughs> against against members of the House of it's Representatives. Can you can, have we? What is this in is, the context of your career? That moment possibility. What what well, what is what does that mean? To, to me, it's it's really extraordinary to think that we would have potentially glad. Lambda and the ACLU LGBT Rights Project all up there at the same time <laughs> arguing to the Supreme Court. Uh, on the same side as the executive branch. On the same side as the executive branch. I mean, we're suing the government, but the government's on our side. <laughs> it's, it's really, I mean, it just shows how totally screwed up DOMA is, you know, when you get right down to it. Uh, so we'd better take our break so we have yeah. a little time left to talk about something else. Yeah, we're going to we're going to only have we're going to do two stories then I guess in total. Uh, when we take our we'll take our break when we return we'll be discussing a non-doma case. Um, it's a case out of New Mexico concerning the rights of a non-biological and non-adoptive co-parent seeking rights in a child custody dispute. Stay with us. We're back talking about an uh, important case out of New Mexico, uh, Chatterjee versus King. Uh, there, the New York, New, excuse me, New Mexico Supreme Court held that a woman who raises a child with another woman and assumes parental and financial responsibility for the child can be a legal parent under New Mexico law, just as a male parent would be, regardless of whether she is a biological parent or not. Art, um, what we have here, we've talked about a lot of these cases. To me, it's a familiar fact pattern of. Um, I don't know if I'd call them LGBT families behaving badly, but basically where you have, in this case, a, a long-term committed couple. In this case, it's a lesbian couple, uh, Bonnie Chatterjee and Taya King, who had been in a committed long-term domestic relationship. They were raising a child together, uh, and these cases usually involve children. Um, and when things go sour in the relationship, one party, in this case it's King, um, does something to basically sever the rights or an attempt to sever the rights of the other party. Uh, here, King moves to Colorado with the child. Um, denies any visitation, and then argues that her former partner has no rights as a co-parent. And along the way, she gets to make use of all sorts of nasty legal arguments based on the fact that they didn't jointly adopt the child together because of discrimination in the context of international adoptions against right. same-sex couples. In other words, same-sex couples can't jointly adopt in Russia. They adopted a child from Russia. Right. So one of them had to be the adopted. So parent. fast forward several years later, no. here's one member of the couple now arguing that, aha, you have no legal rights to this child that you have cared for and held yourself out as the parent of for all these years because you never legally adopt them. And my question for you, I mean, I guess maybe the question is, are courts already doing this? I mean, my inclination is... Can courts not just say, look, you're a stop for making these types of arguments because of the way you well, lived your life? Well, they're not using estoppel. What they're using is the Uniform Parentage Act, which has been adopted in many states, although not all, and a developing case law under the Uniform Parentage Act, which recognizes alternative families uh, in very significant ways. Uh, the uh, Uniform Parentage Act takes account of the fact that a declining percentage of children in this country are being raised by a different sex couple who are married to each other and both biologically related to the child, that uh, between adoption and same-sex couples and unmarried different sex couples who also have kids, there are, are an awful lot of different kinds of families in this country. And the Uniform Parentage Act gives the tools to the courts to cut through all the formalities of old-style family law and to say, look, do we have a family here? Do we have two people who are in the role of parents who created a family, 
who are jointly raising a child, who are holding themselves out as both parents of the child, uh, who were committed to each other at the time they either conceived the child, usually through donor insemination when you're talking about same-sex couple, or through adoption, uh, acquired uh, parental rights over the child, and is there a bonding that has gone on? Is there love and affection? Is there support? And ultimately, the question that should always be the ultimate question in a dispute about custody and visitation is what is in the best interest of the child? Anyone who took family law, anyone who went to law school and took a family law course knows best interest of the child is the mantra. And, and, and on that score, uh, the, the court here in, in reaching the conclusion, which we'll get to, that you know that this, this parent – does have rights with respect to the child or can have rights with respect to the child, says that the child's, quote, need for love and support is no less critical simply because her second parent also happens to be a woman, which right. seems, um, as I often say in these cases, increasingly with the courts seem to be getting it right. It, that seems right to me. Yes, and I think what makes this opinion particularly useful, and it will become a very useful reference tool for people who are practicing in this area, is that the court goes through the case law in other jurisdictions and shows how the Uniform Parentage Act has been interpreted by courts in other states, in California, in Colorado, in Oregon, uh, to get rid of distinctions based on sex and gender. It isn't about whether the parents are married to each other. It's about whether they're functioning as parents, about whether uh, if there is one parent who is the biological or who is the legal through adoption parent, whether they fostered the parental relationship with the other. I mean, that is – I mean, that seems very clear to us now. I mean, that is a bit of a sea change from the days of where Definitely. in the context of – and it still goes on in courts in the country, throughout the country, but where just the fact of one parent being gay – Alone. I right. mean, in this context, they're both gay, so maybe well, that helped. But we're just being – having your sexual orientation would be an issue with respect to Yeah, and, and you can see, I mean, how it played out in this particular case because the trial court dismissed the case, uh, said basically that uh, Bonnie Chatterjee has no standing whatsoever here because she's not a natural parent and she's not an adoptive parent. So she has no legal relationship to the child. Then it went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals affirmed in part and reversed in part. They said she can't seek custody because she's not a natural parent, and in order for someone other than a natural or adoptive parent to seek custody, she has to show that the other parent is unfit. But we will allow her to seek visitation if the trial court finds that in the best interest of the child. So it was sort of a split. What happened? I hate to use the metaphor in a case like this, but it was a split the baby decision. No, you could just say a split yes. decision. Yes. Um, <laughs> so maybe you wanted to use the metaphor. Yeah. But uh, in this context then where one parent has moved, this may be an aside and maybe you, I think yeah. you might know the answer. Jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. Yeah, well, what happens as a practical matter is is, is the, the, the person who fled ordered back into the jurisdiction to allow for – a visitation? Well, if, I mean, if, if the New Mexico court has appropriate jurisdiction in the case, uh, they can issue an order that then would be enforceable under, uh, under the Federal Parental Kidnapping Act. Uh, uh, orders issued by courts having appropriate jurisdiction in uh, child custody cases are enforceable throughout the United States. Uh, so uh, in this case, the Court of Appeals decision goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, you know what? The definition of natural parent under the Uniform Parentage Act cannot be found in the dictionary. They said the trial judge and the Court of Appeals made a mistake. They looked in the dictionary to find out what natural parent means, and they shouldn't do that because the Uniform Parentage Act defines the term. 
So it has a definition for purposes of the statute, which is not the dictionary that definition. Seems rather, um, that seems like a rather large mistake in the sense yes. that definitions and statutes are often different and right. provided for differently than they do in, in sort so, of the so dictionary they said, sense. If you, if you put together all the relevant provisions of the Uniform Parentage Act, what you come up with is that someone can be considered a natural parent if they were involved in the creation of this family and they held themselves out as a parent of this child with, of course, the consent and the collaboration of the other parent, they can be considered for purposes of the Uniform Parentage Act a natural parent. It depends on all the circumstances. We have to look at the totality of the circumstances of these relationships and how they were created and how they developed. And in this case, they said, Taya King never denied any of the factual allegations of Chatterjee's complaint. She just said, as a matter of law, Chatterjee doesn't have standing. She conceded the correctness of the description of the facts. And under those facts, we find that uh, Chatterjee has standing to seek joint custody as well as visitation. And so they remand on that basis. Uh, I think it's it's an extremely well-written opinion. It's a triumph for the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Yeah, it's Rights. worth noting another victory we for should, that group. We should, uh, we should give credit here, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, with cooperating attorneys in New Mexico who argued this case and did a brilliant job of taking the court through the statutory interpretation and showing where the Court of Appeals went wrong. See, Art, you know, we're concluding. It's just good news. It's just, it's this just is good, good news. news. This is good this news is good month. News. We don't have really many negative cases this month. Yeah. It's All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to leave it there then. Uh, we're going to take a very short break and, and conclude with our Of Note segment uh, where we, you know, note other stuff. Stay with us. Yeah. We are back to finish the podcast with our Of Note segment. Art, I'm going to ask you what you have note of note, and of note means you know it's it's know. kind of worth mentioning and passing. Right, it's worth. It's not mentioning. a whole new story. It's kind of like a. I want the listeners to have this little tidbit. Are you filibustering, they- <laughs> Brad? Are you, are you running out the clock? Uh, this is the point because this happened amidst all the cert petitions being filed in the Doma cases. Or it's it flailing might get, his hands at the might moment get so overlooked. you can pay attention. Might get overlooked. We okay. might have another case in the Supreme Court okay. from the state of Arizona. Say it. Say from the state it. of Arizona, the state has petitioned the court for cert in the case of Brewer against Diaz. That's Governor Jan Brewer, who is outraged that the Ninth Circuit is demanding that she extend domestic partnership benefits to state employees. Uh, the state had done that administratively under Janet Napolitano when she was governor. Uh, Brewer came in. They faced a budget crisis. They passed a new law restricting benefits to legally married couples. To save some bucks. Yeah, and Lambda Legal filed on behalf of uh, gay state employees who were going to lose coverage for their uh, partners and uh, won in the Ninth Circuit in what I think is a doctrinally dubious victory. <laughs> no. And yes, I think, I think that if the Supreme Court You've takes this, if the Supreme Court takes this, uh, I don't know, it's, it's uh, kind of an odd case, but that's there. So we might see another gay rights case in the Supreme Court. This is going to be the all gay rights term. Yeah. Craziness. Except when they strike down affirmative acts. <laughs> okay. That's not funny, but... I know it's not okay. funny, but it's looming. Uh, it's looming. Um, so I'm going to be very brief. My of note is just some more good news, uh, as, as Art terms it, uh, Google for gays. And that's that Google, one of the world's largest internet operators, some of you may have heard of them, perhaps you use them to search, uh, announced at a conference in London, London that it would launch a campaign in all countries where it does business, which is a lot of countries, Art. Like Go- China. Yeah, Gart, Art. Not Gart, Art. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of countries. They're going to work to get governments to end anti-gay policies. So we have a major international company, uh, you know, 
getting off the fence. They're already off the fence because Google is obviously a pretty gay-friendly company according to a variety of measures. And they will be pushing local governments to end their anti-gay discrimination for all sorts of reasons, both business and otherwise. And sort of an example of they do say, good, right? They say we send our employees there. We want them to be comfortable. That's and right. we want to be able to send our gay employees And we there. want to get the best talent possible is another point they right. make, which is all, all good business and is the right thing to do. Anything to add to that? I agree that it's the right thing to do. Okay, so uh, thank you for wishing me a happy birthday again, Art. I appreciate it. That's happy all the, birthday, Thank Brian. you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest le- issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.legal.org. Uh, L-E-G-A-L.org. To read back issues, visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. This and future podcasts can be found online in the iTunes store, where you probably found it already, or at legal.podbean.com. Thanks again.